Okay, I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to Ecclesiastes 5. This is the house of God. And we've come here to meet with God. And if you do what this tells you, you're going to be blessed. Let's read it. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow not fulfill it. And do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And we're going to just begin by quietening our hearts and thinking about what this is saying. If you think of the word listen... L-I-S-T-E-N, it's sort of a little acrostic, I love working with acrostics, and maybe this little practical thing will help you, because whenever you come to the Bible or the Word of God, it's good to quieten your heart before we begin, so let's just pray. L, let your soul sit down, tell it to stop making its to-do list, take its pencil out of its hand. I intentionally relax. Just give yourself permission. Hey, it's all right. Draw up a rocking chair. It's good to, S, shut your eyes so that you're not distracted. The Bible says we're to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. What is that distracting thought that's demanding your attention? Well, put a rope around its neck and bring it to Christ. Ask him to hold that thought until you're ready to deal with it after the study. T. Tune into God interiorly. Be still and know that I am God. You can know interiorly that God has spoken to you. His spirit will be your teacher. Jesus said the spirit will take of what is mine and make it known to you. E, we're entering the no-spin zone. You can know the things we learn together are the truth, God's truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. You might want to pray, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. N, Nestle into nearness. Corrie ten Boom used to say, don't wrestle, nestle. <laughs> Speak, Lord. We draw near to listen and not to offer the sacrifice of fools. Teach us, Lord. We're here to learn. I thank you that we have ears to hear. We want to use them. You are in heaven. We are on earth. Yet you penetrate everything. I stand in awe of you.
Amen. Okay, we're living in the grace place. Yes, we are. We're living on a timeline. And I often like to say that you're on this line, like this, this pulpit, and God is here where I am. So he sees you before you're born. In fact, Jeremiah, he said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you, and I called you. Before you were you to choose, I chose you. Before you were you to know, I knew you. And so he sees us before we are we to know, sees us being born, sees whether we'll accept him or not, or reject him, sees how we'll do with the Christian life he's given us to live on this brief, brief timeline. Look how brief it is. Look at all the space around it in the rest of the world. Brief, brief, tragically transient is this timeline. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches. And of course he sees when you come off. And in a sense, and I don't understand it, and who could with our little dust minds, we are already there <laughs> because we are enveloped by this Godness around our little manness as we run along the timeline. And so this is the grace place. This is, God says, enough time to find the reason for our existence, the reason that we're here. He's given us grace. He doesn't need to. That's his goodness and his grace that he's given it us. And he wants us to find out what it's all about. He wants us to have the sense and the wisdom to be thinking seriously about life and not being foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's foolish. Just to live our lives as if there is no God, there's no reason for our existence, there's no purpose, there's nothing definite, as Kierkegaard used to say, to live for. That's the problem. People don't have anything definite to live for. And yet we are here with a chance to figure all that out before we stand in front of him face to face. And there is universal search going on. And in these six sessions, we're going to talk about searching, searching for sense in a world gone mad. And this world has indeed gone mad. Searching for serenity of heart and mind, the tranquility of order deep inside. When everything else is chaos, being held together interiorly, Searching for significance, we're going to talk about that. To feel that I matter to someone somewhere, that I'm special to someone. That's something that every human being is looking for. And we're going to talk about searching for a song to sing in this crazy rhythm of life. And lastly, we're going to talk about searching for satisfaction that lasts and searching for security in an unsafe world. And it's all in this tiny little book of Ecclesiastes, walks down the century into our lives, kicks its shoes off, makes itself at home, and is contemporaneously relevant. So let's start with searching for sense. And I'd like you to turn to the most well-known passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read chunks of this book as we go through it. But this is probably the bit that you might recognize. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die, time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build, time to weep and a time to laugh, time to mourn and a time to dance, time to scatter stones, 
and to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain. Time to search and a time to give up, time to keep and a time to throw away, time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, time to love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men, but he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, I know there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Now, The writer of this book is not saying there is a good time for war, there is a good time for hate, there is a great time to weep, and God has made a wonderful time to mourn, and God's idea is that he wants to scatter stones and to refrain from embracing and to give up and to throw away and to tear and to hate and to go to war. And also there is a time for all the positives. He is describing life after the fall, lived with a sinful nature among the human race that blew it at the beginning of time. He's just saying, that's how it is. That's life. Has anybody ever said to you, it's not fair? And you've said, life isn't fair. This is a description of what life is like. And we are living in this rhythm of life And so it's a puzzle. It's a huge puzzle for people everywhere to try and figure it out, to be wise enough to search for the reasons for it all. And so that's what wisdom is all about. We're going to talk for a little minute about what wisdom is and try and define it and see what the Scripture says about it. Because this is a wisdom book. It's in wisdom literature in the middle of the book. And people that where ungodly wrote wisdom literature in Solomon's time. There's a lot of wise things that people say that don't have a clue about God. But this is godly wisdom, and there's a huge, huge difference, and we're going to see how that is different. Every child born into this world is born out trying to figure out their beingness. I remember looking after Drew, Judy's eldest, when he was just a little chap. And he was running around, and I was exhausted by about half an hour into the exercise. So I went and got a cup of tea and was lulled into a false sense of security. And suddenly, I heard the silence. Have you ever heard a silence? Well, if you have 13 grandchildren like me, then you you know that you've heard the silence. And I rushed around trying to find him, and eventually found him poking something through something he shouldn't be. And I said, Drew, what are you doing? And he looked at me in amazement because I'd found him. And he said, use everywhere, grandma. (laughs) Omnipresent grandma. (laughs) And uh, it was just his amazingness. And all that day, he kept running around saying, I be something. I be hot, Nana. I be hungry, Nana. And then when I was bathing him, I be naked, Nana. (laughs) And he was discovering his beingness. I be. I be me, Nana. 
And that is something that God has done. He's put eternity in the heart of men. He's put a sense of time and identity into the human person. And that's in every single person. It doesn't matter color, clime, culture, language. Everybody has got this sense of eternity in their hearts. And there's something in them searching, saying, there's something out there. This timeline is not all there is. I was coming back from Australia just this month. And Stuart was in New Zealand coming back a different time. And so I was sitting here all by myself, a seat empty next to me. And the air stewardess just came up and said, do you mind if I put somebody in the seat? It's a young woman who's going back for a funeral and she's distraught and she wants to meditate and she wants a seat empty. So could I move you to her seat and she could have these two seats? And the plane was just about to turn off, and I said, well, if you can't find anywhere else, because I've taken everything else out and got all organized, sure, I'll move after, after we're up there. Well, after we were up there, he brought the young lady and didn't ask me to move and just sat her next to me. And so I was very suspicious immediately that <laughs> this looked like a God thing, and it proved to be. Thirteen and a half hours later, I was still talking with this young lady, She sat next to me. She was obviously very upset. I just left her alone, and I was working away, and she saw what I was working on and saw something that triggered something. And she said, um, oh, focus on the family. She said, uh, I used to be head of a company that sold them software and and something called Promise Keepers, too. And and she said, uh, "Is, is that the same people? And so we got talking. And suddenly she stopped, and she said to me, there's the most wonderful vibes coming from you. (laughs) I said, really? She said, great energy. And I looked at her and saw the crystals around her neck, and I knew that there'd been 100,000 young Australians in Sydney at a New Age festival while we were there, and put two and two together. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if it's the same energy that I have, that you have, but let's talk about this. Let's talk about these vibes. She was a seeker, and God had put eternity in her heart, and she had sought for God all her life in the most extraordinary places and the most extraordinary ways, I can tell you. She was a shaman. She also had taken four years in Sydney University on spiritual counseling. Suddenly she said to me, I channel Jesus, you know. I said, really? Well, I do, sort of, but not the same way that you do. (laughs) But she was seeking, and I said, you know something? God has put eternity in your heart. That's why you're looking. But there comes a point where you can actually find. You don't need to look all your life in all these different places. You're looking in the wrong place. But God has put this awareness in people's hearts. And that's what's so exciting about knowing Christ. You can't go out the front door without looking at the person that fills up your car or stand in the supermarket. And without knowing, God's put eternity in their car. And they cannot jettison that. They cannot do anything about it. We have so much going for us when we're trying to share the Lord. And you know something? As man searches for the reason for their beingness, I be me for what reason? What a terrible thing, and how sad if they search all their lives and never find it. 
It's wise to consider the reasons for being in existence. Ecclesiastes 2.12, Solomon, who I believe wrote this book, says, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also folly or foolishness. I turn my thoughts to consider, to think about, to ponder. What is wisdom, he says? What is it? Well, wisdom is spiritual intelligence. That's what it really is. And it doesn't matter what IQ you have. That doesn't matter. Wisdom ignores IQ. In the war, Corrie ten Boom was hiding Jews, got caught, put in Ravensbrück and other concentration camps, escaped or, or was let go through a miracle, and arrived back home. I was writing a book about her, a children's book, and I was talking to one of her relatives in Holland in the clock shop where she lived, near, in the hiding, by the hiding place. And I said to her, can you tell me a story nobody else has written about Corrie ten Boom so I could put it in my children's book? And this relative said, well... I don't know if anybody's ever told you, but she walked out of Ravensbrook, got sick, ended up in hospital, then got in the train, walked back into the clock shop after her ordeal, and her sister died, her father is dead, in the concentration camps, picked up the phone before she took her coat off and said to the head of the underground, I'm back, put me to work. Would you have done that? After what you've been through, I'm back. Put me to work. Incredible little woman. Well, Corrie had seen the Nazis experiment on the mentally challenged and disabled in the camps. And she and Betsy had promised each other that if she ever got out, she would make places for them. And so she kept her promise. She went to Germany, where they turned them all out of the homes onto the streets after the war. There was no one to look after them. And gathered them again into bomb buildings and renovated the buildings and started these homes. She wrote a little book called Common Sense Not Needed. And she talked about the spiritual intelligence of these children, these poor children who had been born without the abilities that you and I have. And she talked about how they loved the Lord. And she talked about how they were waiting for him to come. How their little faces would be pressed against the glass and they'd slobber all over the glass because they couldn't take their eyes off the sky in case he came that day. And she talked about their love for the Lord and their willingness to love each other and to serve each other. Common sense not needed. Wisdom is spiritual intelligence. Wisdom only comes from the only wise God. There is worldly wisdom, and there is wisdom, the other sort of wisdom. What makes the difference, of course, is the Holy Spirit. If you turn quickly to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, there's a wonderful passage here about wisdom. 2, 1 Corinthians 2, wisdom from the Spirit. Verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We haven't received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit 
expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Now try and get your mind around that statement. We have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Well, sometime make a list of all the things in that passage about God's wisdom how it's described. It's described as God's secret wisdom, wisdom that's been hidden, that God destined this wisdom for our glory, that God has revealed this wisdom to us through Christ. Now, what part does the Spirit play? Well, the Spirit reads God's mind. I've just read that to you. Just as you know your own mind, you read your own mind in a sense, the Bible says, so the Spirit reads God's mind. He can do that because the Spirit is God. And after reading God's mind and will, he reveals it to us. He lets us know what God's mind and will is so that we might know what to do in dilemmas. So we might know what to say. There's a time to speak and there's a time to stay silent. And the Spirit will help us to know when to keep our mouth shut. And the Spirit will help us to know what to say when it's time to open our mouth. How will he do that? Because... We have the mind of Christ by the Spirit. We will know. We have his wisdom. We are lent his wisdom. Now, in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon has just taken over from his father David. He has a family with issues, to say the least. He's had one brother that's tried to usurp the throne and take it away from him before he ever got to it. He has another brother that's died because he tried to take the throne from his dad, David. He has a scheming mother, Bathsheba, who's always trying to do this, that, and the other and look after her favorites among all the children that David had produced. And he also has enemies lurching around the place. And uh, he's, he's in this incredible situation of standing in David's sandals. He is totally overwhelmed in this chapter. And he goes and sacrifices and goes overboard as Solomon does on everything he does and he sacrifices 1,000 animals to God in his effort to say, (laughs) if I do everything I can, will you please help me? I can't do this. I I just, I feel so inadequate. God appears to him as he falls asleep that night and he walks into his dreams and he says, ask me for anything you want. You can have anything you want. Now imagine, what would you have asked for? If God suddenly appears in your dream tonight and says, ask for anything in the world, what would you ask for? Well, knowing Solomon's penchant for women and for money and for the easy life, he was not a man of war, we're told. He was a man of peace and enjoyed the good things in life, which is fine. If you don't go in for the extra, as he did, I would have thought at that point he would have asked for wealth and for health, for long life, because in his situation, his life was in danger. But he didn't ask for health and he didn't ask for wealth. He asked for wisdom. And God was pleased. That was a prayer that pleased God. God was pleased, says so in the Bible. And he says, 
I will make you wiser than anybody before you or anyone ever after you, Solomon. You're going to have so much wisdom, you won't know what to do with it. And because you didn't ask for health and you didn't ask for wealth, I'm going to give you that as well. And so God gave him wisdom, spiritual intelligence, to know how to govern. He said, I'm just a little child. You need to read that passage and you'll get a feeling of his total inadequacy at this point in his life. I don't know how to govern. I don't know what to do. And God said, I'll do it in you. I'll help you. I'll feed you the knowledge of my will and wisdom to do it. And that's what God did. So the Bible talks about three sorts of people. It talks about a natural person, a spiritual person, and a worldly person. We're born natural, all of us. We might become spiritual if we meet Christ and hear the gospel. So we're born natural, we become spiritual. But there's a man in between here, and he's the worldly man. He's the human man without the spirit who can explain the reason for being and godness and all the things that we want to know about to us. But the worldly man is a natural man who became a spiritual man but is living like a natural man. He's the one that causes all the problems for the church because people look at the worldly man and say, well, if that's a Christian, forget it. I don't want to join that church and become like them. They're not living after the spirit as they should be. They're living as if they'd never become a spiritual man. And that was Solomon's problem. Solomon lived a spiritual man nearly all his life. He did great, absolutely fantastic. And it was the height of Israel's everything. Israel has never hit the heights like Israel hit them under Solomon at that point. And in his old age, as we'll see as we study a little bit together, in his old age, his wives that he'd multiplied stole his heart away from the Lord. It's a very sad verse in his old age. But most people believe he repented and he came back to God. He had the wisdom to realize God was giving him a second chance. Late in life, God was giving him a second chance. Now, this little book contrasts wisdom, spiritual intelligence, from the Spirit to unwisdom. There isn't such a word, but I'll use one. Unwisdom. Uh, on, the, on the plane, talking to this new age lady, I had a book with me that had been given to Stuart in Australia before he left me and went to New Zealand. And I grabbed it and said, can I read this on the way home? It was written by a pastor in Australia for the new age culture, and it was just called Wisdom. It was one of the most mind-stretching books. I'd only read two chapters. But as I was arguing with this young woman... I suddenly thought, this book says it far better than I ever could. It was just answering her because it knew the culture and knew what she was in. And I said to her, would you, would you mind reading a couple of chapters of this book and then we could talk? He's saying what I want to say much better than me. And she said, oh yeah, sure. She read the whole book an hour and a half later. She couldn't put it down. And in it, it has a little chapter on the cultivation of stupidity. And he just gives seven things on foolishness. Number one, don't think. Number two, never be serious. Number three, do as you feel. Number four, make stupid friends. Number five, learn nothing from experience. Number six, never change your mind. Number seven, criticize continually. The ability to criticize things you know nothing about. This is 
foolishness. He's contrasting wisdom and foolishness. He is not in the wisdom literature. He's talking, doing this philosophically. He's, he never even mentions Ecclesiastes. But as I read those things, I went back to this book, and it only took me five minutes to find a verse for every one of those things in the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't think the fool walks in darkness while the wise man has eyes in his head. Never be serious. Laughter is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? Do as you feel. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I denied my heart. No pleasure, says Solomon. Make stupid friends. Well, as goods increase, so do those friends who consume them. Learn nothing from your experience. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning from his experience. Never change your mind. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, the heart of the fool to the left. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense, shows everyone how stupid he is. Criticize continually. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. And that's just from Ecclesiastes. Just for fun on the plane today, I went into Proverbs, which were written by Solomon, and I found about five or six verses for every one of those. Wisdom and foolishness. So how do we acquire wisdom from God? Now, who is writing this book? Well, for that, you have to come to the end of it. Come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You have to start at the end. I'm sure you know I read Agatha Christie just for chewing gum for the mind when I stop studying. I love Agatha. Good means that I can't think about anything else. I'm trying to sort out the puzzle. And if you want to sort out the puzzle of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's written in a genre you're not used to, and so it does a bit muddled when you read it, then start at the end, then go back to the beginning, and the middle will make sense. Not only was the teacher wise, verse 9, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered, searched out, set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Making many books, there's no end. Much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Not only was the teacher wise, who do you think that was? There is some question whether Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but there are verses that say the words of the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And when you read the autobiography in chapter 2 of all that he did, which we'll do at the beginning of the next session, there is no other king who is son of David that comes near the claims that chapter 2 made. Now, there are some pieces of it that obviously he did not write, like the ones I've just read to you. Not only was the teacher wise, he wouldn't have written that about himself, or he wouldn't have been very wise or humble. And so his amanuensis, or his secretary, obviously wrote that about him. And there are another couple of pieces that might be proverbs that have found their way in there. But this is the work, I do believe, of Solomon. And that encourages me. Because all over the world, I meet people like Solomon. I meet people who have messed up. I meet people who know better. I meet people who think, I've gone too far, or I've done this, that, and the other, and I can't come back. 
And it's my great delight to look at people like Solomon and say, no, God used him in his last days, and he made up for lost time. The teacher searched to find just the right words. The teacher taught them everything he knew. He was on a mission. He came back and was more effective after he'd fallen away from the Lord than he ever was before. And that's encouraging. Fear God, he says. Fear God. What does it mean to fear God? When you think about fearing God, what do you think about? Sinners in the hands of an angry God? Or do you perhaps think of pleasing God? Because that's what it means to fear him. To fear hurting him. To fear upsetting him. I often tell the story of me getting into a little bit of trouble as a teenager and my sister saying to me, you know, Jill, if you ever get pregnant, it'll kill daddy. And that was enough to stop me getting pregnant and to straighten me up because I loved him. I loved him. Shortly after she said that to me, I went to a party and nearly got into big trouble. And the guy that was trying to get me upstairs said, you're just afraid of what your father will do to you. And I said, no, I'm just afraid of what I'll do to my father. If you get pregnant, it'll kill daddy. And because I loved him, I couldn't do it. That's what fearing God means. Fearing God means, I want to please him. I want to delight him. I just want to give my life away every minute of every day because that pleases him. And that's the wise thing to do. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a little piece of scripture, a little gem that is for us. It talks truth, wisdom, rightness, sense in a world gone mad. And there is a will and a purpose for our beingness. And some of it is wrapped up in the scriptures in this place. And so as we begin to think about what Solomon wrote and why he wrote it and how he wanted to do words, use words like goads and nails to get us from purposelessness to purposefulness, Lord, as we dig a little bit, may we unearth the treasures of this little book. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.